This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. xCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers, and that means you, my friend. The xCloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation, and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code BETA, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwildcutters.com forward slash energy. X. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's Friday here in the studio. It's doom and gloom outside here in Houston, but I've got my new friend, Jeremy Gee, with New Horizon Oil and Gas here to talk to us a little bit about exploration. The exploration game, the dying breed of exploration. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a dying breed. There's not many of us left right now, it seems like. Like, are there any more exploration departments anymore? Is it just like, hey, we're just gonna keep uh, Keep keep drilling in, in the existing acres that we have. Uh, it's pretty much that's how it is right now. There's just not as many out there explorers in the industry right now, and uh, there's a big opportunity for the right right people out there right now to go out there and drill some amazing opportunities in these deeper basins in like Gulf of Mexico and uh, South Louisiana, Texas as well. I mean, there's really just a, a an abundant amount of opportunities to to get out there and do some real exploring. What so so high level, I'm assuming you guys are going out there, you're exploring, you're producing. I think you said before we hopped on the mic, yep. uh, Southern Louisiana area. Yeah, so I focus mainly focus on South Louisiana. That's where I began my career. And I've been working in South Louisiana for like the last 23 years. I've drilled over 50 wells down there, have over a 70% success rate working like um, drilling basically conventional conventional prospects. I mean, when all these other guys went to the unconventional space, I decided to stay in the conventional world and go ahead and drill these amplitudes with AVO and structural closures and other, you know, just basically normal, conventional, old school uh, geology, geologic plays that the Gulf of Mexico is known for. Is this mostly onshore? Is it some of the shallow offshore stuff? It's like most of the stuff I do is in shallow waters. So I think on dry land and shallow waters, kind of like south of I-10 is kind of where my uh, honey hole is. And that's kind of where I focus on. All the way from the Texas border, all the way over to uh, eastern Louisiana, Plaquemine Parish. And so, whenever you're drilling in those shallow waters, is it like one of the, like little barge rigs? Yeah, is that how so that works. Most of it's barge rigs. Most of it's like inland barge rigs, and we uh, go out there. We'll bring out a barge, and so permitting can be a little bit tough sometimes. You got to go through the Corps of Engineers and work with the uh, state of Louisiana. A lot okay. of it's the state of Louisiana land I drill on, but um, but there've been. Uh, in the past, they've had some issues with the legacy lawsuits, but that's kind of behind everybody. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of litigation, and the lawyers have figured out the best way to uh, get around that or circumvent that issue the state has had in the past. So, like we said, this is like, you know, exploration is definitely 
uh, not as, as as popular as it used to be. And and I think it's a little bit of a shame. Like we did an entire series called Wildcatter History, and it was talking about how these guys would go out and just literally. I mean, with Creekology, just punch random holes in the ground and just have some absolutely massive finds. NRG, where NRG Stadium is, that used yeah. to be a massive salt dome oil field. A lot of people don't even realize that. Yeah, I didn't know that Huge, either. huge discoveries uh, were, were made over right where Astrodome is and where, where Astroworld and stuff used to be. Huge oil field. Yeah. And once upon a time. So That's there awesome. could, could still be some reserves there for all we know. But like, what, what is, what, like, what appeals to you? about the exploration side. Like what are you seeing that nobody else sees or like what are you equipped with that nobody else is equipped with these days? So the key for us is having a 3D seismic technology. That's basically okay. the bread and butter of what we do. We use 3D seismic to identify structures to and getting up dip of wells that were previously productive, defining new to deepening reservoirs that were shallower sands and it's taking those same sands or same Structures and migrating them deeper for some deeper targets, and also looking for amplitudes with AVO. A lot of what I do is I focus on amplitude with AVO. Um, South Louisiana is one of the best places in the world that that uh, applies to, mm-hmm. that um, that science applies to. And so I kind of focus mostly on amplitudes with AVO, and then also structural closures, taking prospective fault blocks that are shallow or have production shallow and just migrating deeper to deeper sands. All right. I'm going to ask some really dumb questions and I'm sure I'm not the only one who doesn't understand okay. what those terms mean. So, uh, amplitude and AVO really quickly. What is that? Okay. So basically when I'm looking at 3d seismic and amplitude is just kind of like, a, a something on the seismic, just a little bit brighter. It's yeah. brighter than the rest of the background. And that just kind of indication of hydrocarbons that just kind of shows you where hydrocarbons could possibly be at. Then AVO is the amplitude versus offset. So the further you get away, like you'll have a far response, which is basically like from 15 to 30 degrees away. And then you'll have a near response from zero to 15. And so you want, what you want is those fars to be brighter than the nears, than to your source. And that rep- represents what we call AVO. So when you have an a- AVO response, that's a direct hydrocarbon indicator. Mm. And uh, that really helps limit the risk of drilling a dry hole. So in reality, you can really limit the risk of drilling dry holes in these conventional reservoirs with the advent of 3D and amplitudes with the AVO component. Okay. And then the, what is it, I think you said structural- Closures. Closures. What is that? Yeah. So a structural closure, like we're looking at like four-way closures, which are basically just, it's a hill. You're basically looking at a hill. And then we have faults that trap other um, closures down there in South Louisiana. Like we have, because you have to have a trap in order for the hydrocarbons to- uh, accumulate so you're saying multiple faults yeah trapped in there yeah coming <clears> together <throat> or if it's a four-way closure there's no faults it's just a giant hill yeah and that's that's mm-hmm. generally the best way to describe it and that's where all the hydrocarbons accumulate at kind of the crest of that hill okay yeah um, hopefully that helped explain it no no, no that, that makes a lot of sense what is the i'm just getting down to the nitty-gritty like what's the cost of drilling a conventional wall these days well that's it depends a lot on depth and like yeah. pressure. If you're doing like a non-pressured well and on dry land or in uh, using a barge rig, it's like two to three million dollars most likely. If it's like say ten to twelve thousand feet, yeah. Um, if you're drilling a pressured well, which is generally around twelve thousand to fifteen thousand feet, one string of pipe, you're looking at around five to six million most likely. What's the average depth that you're drilling to? Most of the things I'm drilling to are between, you know, 12,000 feet and 15,000 feet a lot of times. Man, that's considered deep for me because yeah. the wells that we used to have are like 3,000. Really? Yeah. yeah. Super the stripper shallow. wells. Yeah. 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 
Um, and so there's also two string pipe tests. You could go really deep and that's where there's tends to be the most underexplored part of, uh, the Gulf coast basin. There's okay. some super deep opportunities there talking below 15,000 feet going from 15,000 to 25,000 feet. Yeah. Like some of the best wells drilled in the last 20 years have all been drilled in that kind of like 18 to 20,000 foot range. Mm. And they're like mm. hundred BCF discoveries and a couple million barrels. Are you mostly producing oil or gas? Uh, it's kind of a combination of uh, okay. gas and condensate. Okay. Nice. What, what's the average, cause I didn't even mention like hundred BCF or yeah, hundred BCF on some of those, um, with, with the stuff that you're normally doing, like what's the average you are, which looking, I know is kind of like, it's, it's kind of a very subjective thing depending on the math, but yeah, we're really looking at like a seven to seven to 20 BCF prospect for mm -hmm. the majority of them with a kind of 500,000 barrel to a million barrel, million barrel potential uh, million barrels condensate along with that. That's not bad at all. No, it's no. pretty good. Yeah. The economics actually really good for the conventional space. You just got to be able to tolerate some dry holes once in a while. I mean, it's yeah. not a perfect science and, but the, uh, economics do look good. Um, a lot of these things are, you know, you, your goal is to make two to one your money with every one of these. You really don't even drill it unless you're gonna make two to one your money. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there's a lot of good opportunities still left out in this particular part of the world. Absolutely. And so are you guys, are you guys drilling these and then operating them or are you drilling them and flipping them? I basically just, um, I bring in an operator to operate them for me and then we'll just operate them. I'll partner up with the operator to come in and help me get the land. Yeah. We'll go get the land then we'll find the, put the partnership together mm -hmm. and then we'll uh, drill the project and we'll produce it out. So you go out and raise cash on an individual well basis yes. or is it usually multiple wells? Well, it's, and what's interesting is like my early part of my career, it's always been on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Mm -hmm. um, I did work for Clayton Williams who basically took a hundred percent of everything for the first eight years of my career. And then I went to work for another group called Houston Energy. And then we did everything kind of on a well-by-well -well basis. And uh, so we'd raise capital on a well-by-well -well basis. But I've learned since leaving or since uh, 2020 when I kind of went on my own, more on my own. Houston Energy still is a great part of mine. And we still work together on quite a few things. But the I've had some opportunities to sell some packages of prospects. And mm -hmm. people really like those opportunities because you know, that way you're kind of committed to drill four to five wells. And uh, people really like the opportunity. If the first one doesn't work, you got to shout at three or four more opportunities. Yeah. So, so you worked with Houston Energy a lot back in the yep. day? Okay. So I worked and there from 2008. They were, till, uh, I haven't like kept kept up with what they've been doing, but they were like pretty, pretty big and active in the offshore space for a long yeah, time. Yeah, they're huge in deep water right now. Yeah. They're very, very active in deep okay. water. So they haven't slowed down at they're all. They're not slowing <laughs> Okay. They're just keep full steam ahead. Yeah. They're a phenomenal group and I've been blessed to work with them and have them as a partner for long time so you you mentioned working with clayton williams and we talked about it a little bit before we hopped on the mic G give me a little bit of your backstory how do we how do we get here well i let's start i guess we'll start from the beginning yeah, yeah. jake um i grew up on a pig farm in central louisiana or central illinois i grew up on a pig farm in central illinois and then i joined the army when i was 18 because i was 17 and i realized i had to get the heck out of here because there was nothing to do in my little farm town of illinois and so I joined the military, went to Fort Leonard, Missouri for a basic training in AIT. Got a, was a combat engineer, so I had to yeah. learn to blow stuff up. And then they uh, sent me to Seoul, South Korea. So I was in Seoul, South Korea for a year. And that was a pretty interesting time in my life. Going Maybe from Korea. Illinois to Seoul, South Korea. Yeah, first time I ever been on a plane. They yeah. put me on a plane going from uh, Fort, like Chicago to uh, Seoul, South Korea. So it was uh, pretty crazy. That's wild. And uh, I spent a year there in South Korea. Then I came back to Fort Polk, Louisiana, which is 
like not Seoul, South Korea. <laughs> it's a completely different world. And when I when I came back to Seoul or from Seoul to Louisiana, I thought I was gonna have to buy like a like a like a like a Piro or something like that to get around because I thought it was all marsh. I didn't know that yeah. it's actually dry land in Louisiana, north of I ten. So <laughs> there's actually a lot of forests and stuff like that around Fort Polk, Louisiana, which was uh, pretty uh, interesting. Then I after that my stint in the military, I ended up meeting a girl from Lake Charles, and uh, she's going. To, she says she's going to school in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was like, well, is there a place I could go? And she's like, yeah, there's one called LSU. So I enrolled. Got accepted LSU and never been, never went there. I showed up on campus. They're like, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, I want to make the most money possible. And uh, they're like, become petroleum engineer. And so I literally got out of the guy's chair, walked over to the petroleum engineering building. And uh, you know, Fred Thurber over there to petroleum engineering, um, uh, college of petroleum engineering. And uh, enrolled in petroleum engineering. And then, um, so I got my very first week of classes. I had this geology lab um in Howe Russell building for petroleum engineering. And I walk up to Howe Russell and there's this guy named Ben Jamalva. He's a local geologist in town. He was doing some consulting for L-Log and uh, consulting for Clayton Williams. And uh, he was looking for a runner, a geologist or petroleum engineering. And I was like, well, I don't know what a geologist is or a petroleum engineer is, so I better figure this out. So I called him up, went over to his office and uh, he lived in this really, really awesome house in uh, South Downs area, like right outside yeah. LSU's campus. And, uh, I like, I was like, you know what? I could probably, I could probably do this. And, uh, uh, Ben ended up hiring me and ended up working for Ben for eight years. And I was grateful for that time there. He's a great man. And, and Ben worked for Clayton Williams. Yeah. He was a consultant with Clayton Williams. Did you get to spend much time with Clayton? Uh, I did. I was fortunate enough. Like Ben always treated me really well. And he brought me over to here to Houston quite a bit. So I was like traveling back and forth between Baton Rouge and Houston. And uh, Mr. Clayton Williams, uh, Kathy, he has these really awesome parties. Like he was known for having these amazing parties. And so he always had a party down at the aquarium, the, the Aggie Christmas party. So yeah. we always went down there April 1st of every year. The aquarium had the uh, Aggie Christmas party. And so it was pretty fun. You got to tell me your, your favorite Clayton Williams story. Well, I will say. I know, I know he, he's a character. He's, I don't wanna, I'm going to tell, tell you why I, I know these things. But um, yeah, I'm curious. Like, what is your favorite Clayton Williams story? Clayton Williams. He always was on the dance floor, and every time yeah. I, every time, every party I was at, he always was on the dance floor, and always, he was, he was always out there with some of the best dancers in the entire room. I promise you that. That's, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, no, I, I've seen photographic evidence. So, uh, so Chuck Yates, uh, you know, works with us, uh, knows um, uh, Clayton's right hand man, Mel Riggs, yeah. and so we got introduced to Mel. Mel introduced us to Modesta, had us over to uh, Clayton's office a while back. It was cool. Nothing's changed uh, since he passed. And it was just really surreal to get there and just see where see where he worked and get to meet her. And she gave us a full tour through the through the office and was just just the hallways are lined with with photos of their life and the parties and, and having George Strait out there and singing and all that stuff. And so it was a it was a really, really yeah, cool experience. And for the us. other thing I remember from Clayton Williams parties, he'd always have like a big band, like you're saying, yeah. at the early part. But at the end of the night, he'd always bring in his guys from the uh, from the ranch to come in and yeah. sing. Like his, when he was out there hunting his hunting camp, one of always the, bring in the guys from bring whiskey, whiskey and beer, and you know all this. One of the things that people didn't realize, and I didn't know this until uh, Modesta told us, and then I actually uh, found some YouTube videos of this. But he was great at singing mariachi music. Oh yeah. 
and seeing it in Spanish and just like totally nailing it like on the dance floor. And so you can you can YouTube it, look up Clayton Williams Mariachi, you'll find a couple video clips. Yeah. That have uh, made it to the internet. So he was an absolute legend. Yeah. And uh, it was a it was a pleasure working with him and uh, Mr. Like I said, Benjamin was treating me so good and wanted mm-hmm. to be involved in all that stuff. So I'm really grateful for all my time with there. I've been I've been blessed to work with some great people. Jake, that's really kind of what it boils down to. There's a lot of great people in this industry. You're right about that. So you did that. You did that for eight years. What was what was next? Then I went to a Nape and I saw and uh, I was walking around Nape and I saw these guys that had a booth that said uh, looking for a geologist, one percent are willing to pay override and and uh, salary. And I was like, well, that sounds like me. Sign, I'll <laughs> sign up for that. And so I walk over to the booth and I meet this guy James Hart and James is like, uh, yeah, you got to go down to the end down there and talk to. Uh, that guy down there with glasses, that's uh, Ron Neal. And so that's how I got introduced to Ron Neal. And uh, lo and behold, Ron Neal, Ron Neal and Bill Harrison also went to LSU. And those are the founders of Houston Energy. So okay. that, uh, I was pretty blessed. Kind of just kind of worked out. And uh, I went to the office the day after that. I get, met Ron on that Thursday. And then I went over to his office on Friday afternoon, interviewed with him. Didn't hear anything for a few weeks. Then all of a sudden I get a call one Friday afternoon from a guy named John Redfield. He was at Houston Energy and he said, uh, yeah, we're about to hire you. And, you know, there we go. So what was, what was your main focus there? I was doing uh, exploration, onshore exploration in South okay. Louisiana, working some uh, okay. 3D surveys in like Plaquemine, Lafourche, and Jefferson, Terrebonne. Yep. Um, it was a great experience, had a lot of fun. We got to drill a bunch of wells and uh, had a lot of success. And they've had a lot of success as a company. And over the last 20 years, they're probably the premier exploration company entire entire business. So I've been, yeah. I was fortunate enough to work at that with them at a great time. That's awesome. So then was, was that the, the last company you worked for? Then you, you leapt out and decided to do your own thing? Well, it's funny as COVID, you know, I yeah. mean, I kind of affected everybody a little bit differently. And mm-hmm. so I kind of looked at that computer screen when oil went negative on in that day in April. And I was like, well, now's my opportunity. And, you know, there's only one way to go up. From here. It's only up from here. You're right about that. And so I was like, and then uh, Ron and Billy, you know, they were very grateful and generous and said, uh, Jared, they brought me in their office in July of that year and said, Jared's probably a really good time right now. If you ever want to start your own thing, now's probably a good time. You have our backing. We'll help you out, help you get started. And uh, they were fortunate enough and gave me some office space to get started and uh, started there um, on my own officially September 1st, 2020. And for the first year, I didn't really have, uh, I, I basically went off salary September 1st, 2020 for the first time in my life. And uh, I was living, I had some cash coming in from some wells I drilled and stuff like that. And then Donald Trump gave the $100,000, you know, you take out $100,000 from your 401k at that time yeah. well with no penalty. And I was like, took that out of my, uh, took that out of my 401k account. And that kind of gave me the cushion and mm-hmm. the enough to get started and i told my wife emily who's been uh, very supportive along the way as well she's been great i was like honey when this runs out i'll go back and get a real job <laughs> but luckily it kind of uh lasted me and then when i was sitting there during COVID, i was got to learn a lot about other stuff i mean i was at home a lot i was mapping a lot making a lot of maps doing a lot of just good old-fashioned geology and getting in there working on the workstation mapping every day from you know 6 a.m till 9 p.m every night um, this was during COVID before, you know, I really, when I, I was still at Houston Energy. Then I started learning more and more about Bitcoin and stuff like that. Yeah. And 
um, Raw Paul. I don't know if you know those guys at all, but they have a great uh, Real Visions. Or uh, okay, channel. yeah, they're really good. Mm-hmm. So I started re- listening to Real Visions stuff like that. Then they also had this thing called the Carbon Markets, which were first time I ever heard about it was on Real Vision, and that was in October of 2020. I was like, man, this is interesting. And so I just started following the carbon markets and stuff like that. And then in, uh, so I was on my own from October or September 1st, 2020, just trying to generate prospects and come up with ideas and find some investors. And it was a horrible time to try to find investors to drill oil and gas wells. It was not good. (laughs) But uh, luckily I had that Trump, the Trump money along with some savings. And that gave me the cushion to like kind of still live life with and not have to you know, stress too much, but, um, it was getting down and all of a sudden, you know, as then I also know some folks over at Talos, uh, uh Tim Duncan, the CEO over there, mm-hmm. John Parker, who are great guys. And, uh, John Parker called me up one Friday afternoon and June, this is like June 9th of, uh, 2021. John Parker calls me up and says, Hey Jared, what are you doing right now? It was a Friday afternoon. Like I remember clear as day. It was Friday afternoon, like four, three or four in the afternoon. I was making spaghetti for my kids at the at the in the kitchen and um i was like uh, i'm making spaghetti right now he's like hell can you or he says can you come in on monday and uh we, we'd like to talk to you about something and i was like okay and so i was like i'll go to their office on monday and they're like uh you know this carbon capture thing are you interested in doing something like this and i was like sure sign me up so uh, uh they offered me a consulting gig doing uh carbon capture and i was part of part of the initial efforts for their carbon capture business there at talus mm-hmm. i've been very blessed Work with some great people at Talos with uh, John Parker, Bob Abenshine, Robin Fielder, great, great leaders and have great leadership over there as well. And uh, so I'm still doing some, I'm still doing consulting with Talos as well in the carbon capture industry. We got to get Tim Duncan on the podcast. Yeah, he's a, you know what? You may, he'd probably talk for two or three hours straight and you may not <laughs> talk, can't speak, but uh, no, Tim's a great guy. He's phenomenal. He, he's a great speaker. He's a phenomenal. He is. Speaker. He is. I saw him on uh, it was a David Blyman's podcast. I actually went and watched that, and um, we we've been interviewed. Hadn't had a chance to connect yet yeah. uh, through Chris Power. I don't know if you know Chris Powers at, at Chevron. Oh yeah, on yeah. CCUSA. Yeah. Yeah. So we had him on the show a while back. Um, let's dive into okay. Since we're on CCUSA, let's dive into that, and then we're going to get deeper on the exploration side. What are you doing on the on the CCUS side? Are you going and you looking for reservoirs to actually deposit the the carbon into, or? Yeah. So that's basically what we're doing is we're looking for places to inject the CO2 into. So the goal here is to, you want to be near infrastructure, obviously, because that's kind of one of the keys to the whole play. And I mean, a lot of these people. Yeah, because you're not going to capture the carbon and then transport the carbon. And then the cost is very yeah, high. Yeah, it's got to be pretty much all. We're basically mm-hmm. reverse engineering yeah. what we do in the oil and gas business. We're just basically taking it from the plants. All that oil and gas we sent to the plants a long time ago, we're putting new lines in, coming back out from the plants, going back out to the oil fields and injecting it underground mm-hmm. to get the, to get the uh, CO2 tax credit. So what are you looking for in a, in a, in a place that the carbon is, can be injected into safely, sustainably, no issues, economically, all that? Like, what are you looking for? It's got to be close to the emissions. So the key okay. is like close to the emitters or close to a pipeline like a, you know, Exxon and Denver kind of have that CO2 pipeline now. Mm-hmm. They, call the, they call it the Green Line, which carries uh, CO2 back and forth from like Houston area all the way up through Jackson, Mississippi. And the key is like you got to be below 3,000 feet 
we're looking for like a good top seal. So we're looking for like a really, really nice shale, like a three, you know, a couple hundred feet of shale would be really, really nice. We're basically looking for the interval from 3,000 feet to around 10,000 feet because you want to be in that kind of non-pressure interval. It's good to inject into the, the tight shale like that? No, you want it, you want that as your seal. You oh, as your seal. Okay. So you're gonna inject gotcha. below the shale. I was like, it sounds like you're making it harder for yourself than it needs to be. No. So use that shale as like your seal. Okay. So it's like a seal and you want that to be pretty contiguous throughout the area. So you want to inject into the sands below that top seal. That's what you're basically doing. Yeah. And these sands are these uh the carbon will kind of dissipate into the, the CO2 aqua or the uh, saline aquifer and you'll end up with a, a CO2 front or a plume and it'll kind of migrate in the direction it dips, but it'll eventually stop migrating. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. So a lot of technology, a lot of new technology, a lot of reservoir engineering has to go into these modeling. A lot of it's based off models right now. Mm -hmm. There's nothing has been done in, uh, hasn't been done in the Gulf Coast so far. So is it still, I know Chris and I talked about this, but from, from your perspective, is it still, is the, the kind of the commercial mechanism on this, is this carbon credits or carbon yeah, tax benefits correct. and things like that? That's correct. Same okay. thing. That's a, that's kind of the market right now is the carbon credits. And uh, yeah, you know, it's taking these large energy companies to come out here and do it because it's a very, very expensive process. It's not inexpensive by any means, but they're doing the best they can. And we're all, we're all doing our best we can to uh, kind of save the planet one uh, CO2 molecule at a time, you know, <laughs> kind of like putting it back in the ground. Yeah. So, and uh, is there any limit to how much you can inject into uh, there, a single? There kind of is. I mean, you don't want to. it probably depends, but it, it's yeah. depending on the porosity and stuff of like the uh, sands you're doing, injecting into and the area. Because you want to extend it. You want that plume not to grow too big because mm -hmm. it can grow too fast, too big. You want that plume to kind of uh, gradually grow and then it'll move over time up in the up dip direction. But you'll probably, it's funny, you're you're injecting, you know, several BCF a year, you know, several BCF to 20 BCF a year in these things. It's mm -hmm. pretty impressive the amount of CO2 you're able to put away. Mm. It's compared to like an oil and gas well. And is there, are, are you able to do any sort of like EOR like you would a CO2 flood, steam flood, water flood so with some of the carbon? I know that naturally a lot of this infrastructure is not co-located next to some of the actual upstream assets. Denbury actually did do quite a bit of CO2 injection to extract hydrocarbon, yeah. hydrocarbons from existing reservoirs and EOR stuff. So there is a lot, that is still an option for a mm -hmm. lot of these places. I mean, that the it's been going on for a very long time, CO2 injecting in these wells. And so it's nothing new, nothing crazy new. It's just doing it diff for a different reason. Instead of doing it for EOR, we're doing it to like help the planet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, could you still get the same tax credits if you were doing it for EOR? It's a little bit less, so I okay. believe it's. I could be slightly wrong. I think it's eighty-five dollars if you just inject it. It's and it's like fifty-dollar tax credit. Um, eighty-five dollars per ton. Per ton, correct. Okay. And fifty dollars per ton if you are doing it for EOR. I think they bumped up fifty dollars per ton if you're using it for EOR. So how many ton? Okay, actually, I'm just going to skip to the end of the equation. How much money on the BCF, how much money would you make on a carbon capture well on average if it's $85 a ton? Well, the returns are not as good as the oil and gas industry. You're looking okay. for like, you, the margins are a whole lot slimmer. Mm. So if you're, it seems like you're making the 15% return, you're doing pretty good. Okay. Just to let you know. Okay. Um, but these projects are extremely expensive. Like mm. I said before, they can vary from 200 million is what I've seen the cheapest up to like almost a billion dollars for some of these projects. 
very expensive project. Jeez. So in your position, right? So you're 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 doing the the, the consulting on the CUS side. You're also doing the exploration. And I, cause I'm curious about transition and the exploration side, but where are you seeing as you're like seeing capital flow? Are you seeing more capital flow into the CCUS stuff? Are you seeing, cause obviously not as many people are investing into exploration, right? Exactly. So do you see that as something that's easier to get funded versus totally. a lot of the exploration stuff? Totally right now, I believe so. Even, de- even like- despite the more modest returns compared yes. to. So what's interesting is I kind of look back at my career when I was kind of, I had a lot of time to think obviously during COVID and when I went on my own and uh, I was like, you gotta sit, you gotta kind of, there's, there's spigots of money out there and that's where the capital is going. And so the spigot of money right now, it was in shale for the, you know, the last decade roughly, you know, I guess, you know, 2010 to 2020. Now that spigot of capital is transitioned from the shale revolution to renewables. And so it yeah. seems like everyone wants renewables or at least wants some piece of renewables. And those things seem to be getting funded yeah. a little bit easier than the oil and gas stuff. And no one, to get oil and gas funding for the projects I do, we used to have uh, private equity companies coming in to fund a lot of it and then other oil companies as well. Now we're using a lot of uh, high net worth individuals and a lot of family offices are funding the majority of the projects we put together. Mm. in the oil and gas sector and also oil companies as well. So really quickly before we go to that, on the CCUS side, what is the outlook moving forward? Is it is it are we looking five, ten years out and still locking in kind of these modest returns? Or is there optimism that those will rise over time either with new regulations, better credits, incentives, cost of building will come down? What's, what's the kind economic of a goal? little bit of all everything you just mentioned. Hopefully the technology gets a little bit better. The costs come down. Um, we learn a little bit more as we start doing these wells and it'll be a little bit cheaper. We'll have more infrastructure being built. So the projects will become a lot more, a lot less expensive. And then also carbon credits will be treated as probably like a regular commodity. So it'll be traded and so on and so forth. So the, the carbon credits could actually, the tax credits could actually go up in value. Yeah. There's a chance for that as well. Yeah. And these projects, like when we sign these people up, we're signing them up for 12 years, 12 years at the minimum, 20 years as a, uh, the most likely scenario for a project. Like a 20 year, most of these projects can be 20 year projects, but then you got to keep on monitoring it for up to a hundred years. Make sure that plume doesn't move. Yeah. That's a, that's a big commitment. A hundred years. It's a big commitment. Like <laughs> you're like, my, my family is going to have to monitor this after I'm exactly. long gone. Exactly. <laughs> but there's been, but you start doing these projects and there's been a lot of capital devoted to it. And these tax credits have been actually around since 2008, but they were just mm-hmm. so insignificant. You really couldn't take advantage of them to make it cap, to make it work economically. Yeah. So going on, going to the exploration side. So you said that, you know, back in the day, private equity companies were coming in funding this. It's not quite in vogue. It's not sexy anymore. You've moved more towards high net worth individuals. One of the things that I don't think we've ever talked about in this podcast, and we'd love to dive into it, is how do you how do you structure these kinds of deals? So, assuming it's 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 one individual well that you're drilling, what is kind of the high level structure? Are you saying, hey, I'm putting up X amount of of working interest, or uh, or I guess it could be overriding royalty interest or whatever, in exchange for the cash? You guys go drill. Hopefully, it's not a dry hole. Yeah. So basically, how these things are structured is like. 
we ask for some type of cash up front to help reimburse our time, pay for the time, pay for the seismic. Mm-hmm. If the seismic's not free, pay for you know IT departments, pay for land guys, and pay for engineers to get estimates, cost estimates, and stuff like that. So we do ask for some capital up front to kind of cover those costs. Mm-hmm. And then we ask for a little override, you know, to uh, as part of the bonus structure of like for the people kind of involved. skin the game. Yeah, yeah, so that way you have some skin in the game and stuff. And then we'll also ask for after the well pays out, we get so you could do it a couple of different ways. A lot of people ask for third for a quarter, which is like a basically, you know, you pay for you basically carried in the well for a certain percentage. Or another option would be after the well pays out, you come in for after everyone gets all their money back, you come in for a certain percentage, you know. So mm-hmm. that's how I structure a lot of my projects I work on is once the investor gets all their money back, I come in for a piece of the piece of the well. How many, I love that. Um, I think that a lot of people don't understand how that works. So I'm yeah. glad you, we talked about it. Um, how, how are you kind of like splitting your time now? And like, are you, do you have a lot of wells that you're drilling currently? I spend a lot of time working carbon capture right now. Yeah. Um, still, it's, it's a full-time new, it's very, <laughs> it's, it's a full-time It's job. enough to keep you busy. Yeah, it's enough yeah. to keep me busy. And then I kind of do the oil and gas stuff on nights and stuff like that. Um, and I have a pretty good network of folks who are friends of mine who participate in these wells. So it's, yeah. Uh, I developed over the last 20 years, but uh, the carbon capture has, it's basically a full-time job. In fact, we're shooting a 3D right now. It's been the first time I've ever got to do that. So I'm doing a lot of fun stuff with that. I mm-hmm. mean, the first six months was a, on the team was like, I think you talked about, uh, I heard one of your other podcasts with uh, Peter Harding. And uh, he's like, when you had that kind of, we had a six-man team when we first started the projects and we just were blown and going leasing like hundreds of thousands of acres. It was like, <laughs> just crazy. It was, and then, you know, as you get these projects, then you got to start developing them and stuff like that. But we were just flying by the seat of our pants when we first did this. Cause I had no idea along with everyone else who's working these projects, what you're actually looking for. And fortunately we kind of cracked the code first on what we're really, I mean, obviously Dinberry knew what they were doing, but we were one of the first companies out there to really crack the code on what we really wanted to, uh, to go do and uh, Dave Middleton at Talos, he really helped me out to kind of understand mm-hmm. the uh, geology part of the CO2. And he was a big part of the early, early efforts there as well. In Talos. That's awesome. On, do you think there's a future? Do you think exploration is going to grow? Uh, you know, what's interesting is like, I don't know Jake, because there's not a lot of guys who do what I do. There's yeah. a very, like we were talking about before we got started today. I go to these, I go to a lot of these luncheons and stuff like that between the ages of, you know, 60 and 30, there's probably four or five of us in the room and one or two guys working like South, one guy working South Texas, one guy working East Texas, one guy working Louisiana, and then one guy working another part of Texas, maybe another guy working Louisiana. So there might be five of us between the, that kind of age of 30 to 50 doing actual between 30 and 60 really do an exploration. And then from 60 to 80, there's a whole lot of guys, but you know, as you know, geologists, they just don't retire. They just end up dying. So I've really worked <laughs> over the years, Jake. Um, but so if you had, so if you had a young kid come to you and he was like, man, I'm obsessed with this or his, here's this podcast. And he was just like, I just want to go punch holes in the ground. What it like, what advice do you, you give to him? Go become an engineer. Go become a petroleum <laughs> engineer. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it <laughs> don't do it 
uh, extracting oil from existing fields is a whole lot easier than uh, doing exp- expirations. It's 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 tough. It's a tough business. Yeah, it takes a lot of takes a lot of intestinal fortitude, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to stomach a lot. Yeah, it's 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 very high stakes gambling with science supported. Very mm-hmm. high stakes. Science supported gambling is how I describe it. Where do you where do you typically start? Like let's just look at a project from literally from ground zero. Is it you're talking to people, you're getting hunted? Let's just assume that it's an area where there's like there's nothing, right? So you have no other wells that have been drilled. Where do you like where do you start in like the technical process? I so my company, New Horizon and Gas, I call it analog based exploration. So I kind of try to stay in basins that are have are close to production um if you're going off to a completely different basin where there's no wells at all that's pure wildcatting that's very 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 high risk um what i do is kind of lower like i it's more of almost development exploration Mm. is what we're looking for here yeah where i could say you know over here in vermilion parish there's a well that drilled till seventeen thousand feet and they found you know, 100 feet of pay in the Scythe D sand. I'm going to follow that along the trend into like Cameron Parish and look at and see if I have any data over there. And if I have data over there, I'll start exploring for that kind of that same Scythe D sand over there in Cameron Parish. It's kind of how it works is like I just kind of find because I find follow these trends. What's interesting is these seismic, the way they shot seismic is not on trends. They shot seismic by making a box and just shooting a seismic. And so the key is having access to uh these seismic that you kind of put the trends together and you kind of see trends as they go from like uh west to east as mississippi was depositing sands a long time ago just kind of how they were spread throughout time i've always isn't it maybe this is just uh me not understanding it but don't we have enough like data whether it be seismic or logs or other stuff to where we could in theory, use some sort of like AI to like map the subsurface, like like some sort of like three D visualization, and then just like boom, sounds, we can de-risk it. Like I would imagine, because I mean, how much like how much data do we have out there? We have all the data, but the, some of these the technology is uh, when they shot the data, the technology was not as good as yeah. The analogy for the newer three Ds are a whole lot better. Like the offshore three Ds are a whole lot better. So there's a whole lot more human error on these onshore 3Ds. And that's kind of why I stayed there. Mm-hmm. Focus there is because the stuff that was shot, there's still a whole lot of human error that goes in these things. Like, we, in fact, I was working a survey. And a lot of times what I do is I find a survey that doesn't look right and try and figure out what happened during acquisition or what happened during processing. Mm-hmm. And can we figure out the solution to that survey and kind of crack the code on that particular 3D survey and figure out, well, why are ample, why are these giant reserves not lighting up good or is there because if you go into a survey and you have one or two things light up and then you have some other stuff that's harder to see you got to figure out exactly what's going on there so do you think with the new technology give it another i don't know five years with how crazy thing is things are progressing with a, could we map the subsurface you could but could I, we get to the point to where it's like we know exactly I we know exactly where the resources are. And we could just, and then unlock essentially all of this stuff that we could never tap into. Before. I think some of these areas that are less 
complex. You definitely could that are yeah. not as uh, like in West Texas where it's a little more flat and stuff like that, and some of these areas where there's not as much geology going on because it still does take human people to go in and kind of like tie everything together and make put the yeah. story together. Yeah. So I think you still will have even myself like I have low overhead. I try to hire consultants and people come in. Um, don't have you know. You just don't hire a lot of employees right now and just kind of keep things simple and small. Mm-hmm. Because what's interesting is even the advent of PowerPoint. Like he's, I was talking to uh, another gentleman in the industry not too long ago about it. Putting together a prospect to go find people to fund. I used to take months to put that prospect together and to go to basically go get it drafted. You'd have to go to the draftsman and you have to go back and forth and draftsman. Then you'd have to like, call you'd have to call and set up all these appointments in new orleans and you'd have to literally get in the car and drive to new orleans and show a prospect or something like that or uh you have to go somewhere it just was inconvenient but now with like the advent of like powerpoint you know just something simple like powerpoint and putting all your you know your displays in powerpoints it makes everything a whole lot easier and then you could have a zoom meeting with someone that makes and you don't have to travel you spend a lot less time traveling so the efficiency has gotten a lot better yeah. in the industry a lot of jobs were eliminated um like the draftsman there's not even a single draftsman in the industry when i never heard of that that was like a f- big job back in the <laughs> you know 80s 70s and 80s <laughs> do you ever hear about that um i can never remember the name of it um there was a company that was started by a guy out of the jet propulsion labs at nasa and he raised 400 million dollars and his whole pitch deck on like what he was raising money for and he wasn't an oil and gas guy, by the way. But he raised money from some very prominent oil and gas men. Was that he was going to shoot seismic from the air? Yes, I've you, heard of you this. heard of this? So heard of he this, yeah. he 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 bought some old decommissioned Russian jets. Yeah, right for like twenty million bucks each, and then apparently had this proprietary technology, and he was just going to be flying over basins, just blasting down essentially this like seismic from the air. Yeah. And that's this whole thing. It's like, we're just going to map everything and we're going to know instantly where all the resources are. I don't think that worked out very well. It didn't. I think he's in prison. Okay. Um, yeah, the whole thing was like this big fraud debacle yeah. and stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, man, that was like in 02, 03. It was like early 2000s. So people try a lot of different things to figure out, yeah. to track the code, you know, yeah. how to find it. It obviously resources. struck a nerve with like seasoned oil men who oh, were yeah. putting a lot of cash behind it. They were like, wow, if this is possible, that would be amazing. It was risk dollars, I guess you'd say. Yeah. If it would have worked, it could have been a home run. It was definitely a science experiment. Yeah. It was a really good fraud. (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't, yeah, I've heard of some people doing stuff like that before. Just basically, I like just, I basically just go back to the basics, do an old school, you know, subsurface geology on a project. If I find a prospect, I go in, look at the well, I go in and actually pull every well log in the area. I make a subsurface map of what I think it looks like in the area. So not on computers, yeah. computer generated. Then I'll take that information after I map it on the subsurface and I'll plug it into the computers and then I'll tie all the computers together and all that information and see how it looks there. And see if we actually have a prospect that holds up and can stand can stand the scrutiny of the industry. That's awesome. What are you what are you most excited about? What am I most excited about? I am most excited about drilling the next well. It's so fun to drill these wells. There's really no other feeling in the world quite like drilling. Give me your best 
like the highlight of your career in terms of like drilling a well? Like I think back to like, we've got a picture somewhere in the office, like our little shitty stripper well operation with me and Colin sitting in front of it. Like we literally put a, put a camera up on the truck and a timer and like pose in front of it. And it was like the most gratifying thing because it was like, we had this vision, be oil men. It wasn't like crazy and grand, but we did it. Yeah. And it was like, pat on the back. I was like proud of myself for it, you know? So like, what was like, what was your, what was your story? What was your moment? Um, one of the first wells I drilled, Houston Energy, there was a well called Bayou Baratary we ended up drilling. And uh, Manti Resources out of Corpus Christi yeah. was in the well. Had a buddy and, used to work there. Yeah, and so we were drilling the well, and uh, Chuck, their geophysicist, was on there, and we're like, man, we haven't hit the target yet. <laughs> we're not there. And uh, it was like, are we ever going to hit it? Because it was like 200 feet came in. It was coming in deeper than we thought. So I was like, it was extremely nerve wracking for me because it was like one of the first wells I drilled at Houston Energy and put together first prospect prospect I put together at Houston Energy, and uh, we finally hit the target. And uh, Chuck called me up and was like, "Tell me all about it." And I was talking to Dale Coulthard, who worked at Houston Energy. He was like, "We were pumped. It was this. It was a super exciting moment. It was like, yeah, I know, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I can actually do this." And, you know, be on my own, you know, and doing this because in the past I've always worked with like Ben yeah. and stuff like that, working together on these projects. And this is one I put together myself and found turned out to be a really nice well and, uh, with Manti. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is, I, I can actually do this. So it was, it's, it gave me that vote of confidence, I guess, to like um, keep pressing forward. And I guess I love it. You know, it's funny you talk about, I heard you talk about that in another podcast is like, a lot of times you just got to keep doing the work no one else is willing to do and keep pressing, yeah. moving forward. That's the hardest part with the startup. Yeah, it's it's just yeah having that conviction that when things get hard, like that you're on the right path and that this is all worth it, and you kind of keep marching forward. And um, yeah, drilling a well is still in my uh, still in my bucket list. I don't know if it's the smartest thing in the world, but it's on there. Yeah, you know, it's a different thing buying wells, but actually drilling one and being successful just to just to check the box. There was another you time know. I did have one more experience where I did have two discoveries in one day. They're conventional wells, so like these unconventional guys, they're drilling like ten wells a day, ten wells a day. Yeah. But does it really count if it's unconventional? That's that's the question. <laughs> I mean, not a whole lot of science is going these unconventional wells. It's like you're just drilling into a uh, shale bed or a, yeah. you know tight sand or something to frack it. I mean, I don't know if it really counts. <laughs> I don't count it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> You're gonna have some of these unconventional guys wanting to fight you after this. Probably, probably. <laughs> different geology, just different. It's more of mining is actual. And there's art to doing. I feel like there's art to doing what I do. Yeah. Whereas the other unconventional is more of a mining operation. Yeah. You know, and like the guys that some a lot of my mentors are just phenomenal guys, a true artist, what they do. Jared, this has been awesome. We'd never talked to anybody who's actually focused on exploration. I didn't know there was any of you left. Yeah. And so you may, be, you may be the only one we ever have on. Um, but this was this was fascinating. So really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you as well, Jake. Yep. Nice to meet you. If you guys like the episode, take two seconds, share with your friends, share with all your colleagues. We'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.